1: Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist.
1: for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: That's right.
4: Hi, everyone. It's Sophia. Welcome to Work in Progress. Hello, friends. I am so thrilled to be joined today by one of my journalism heroes, a true icon, the inimitable Dana Bash. Dana is celebrating 30 years at CNN. This year, she has covered campaigns and politics for the network for three decades. She literally started there running the teleprompter and in the tapes library before working her way up to chief political correspondent and now finally solo anchor of her own weekday show. The launch of Inside Politics with Dana Bash marks her first solo show and is such a major moment in her storied and legendary career, and honestly, for all of us who watch the news and who have been longing to see a powerhouse woman like her anchoring. In addition to being one of the best-sourced political journalists in the country, Dana has mentored an entire generation of journalists. She's beloved for her incomparable chops as a reporter and her willingness to provide sound guidance to others. And truly, no one deserves the accolades more. I am so thrilled today to be joined by one of my heroes because I have so many questions on what the hell is going on in the house, this whole shenanigans going on with the speaker being ousted. And since we booked this interview with the war that has broken out between Israel and Gaza, there is so much pain and strife. And I know so many of us have so many questions and I think there is no one better to speak to about this than her. So let's get going. Dana, I'm so excited to be here with you today, not only because you are one of the journalists that I admire most, but because, you know, pinch me moment truly for my life over all the years um, that I've been fortunate enough to do a little bit of work in Washington. You've become someone that I get to see socially and you are as cool and fun to hang out with as you are smart on television and in life. And I just, I have like the ultimate brain crush on you. So thank you so much for coming today.
5: So nice. It's so good to see you, Sophia.
4: Thank you. Um, there's so much for us to talk about. And and there's so much that I want to dig into. I mean, you have covered campaigns and politics at CNN for 30 years now. You are such a decorated veteran of journalism. The, the way that you worked up through your career is so incredibly inspiring. You're known as one of the best sourced political journalists in the country and you're such a beloved figure and as such I have limited time with you and I really want to respect that. So I want to ask you a couple of questions about your career um, but I also really want to be mindful that we get into current events because there is a whole lot going on here. What was it that made you want to become a journalist in the first place?
5: It's interesting, Sophia, I spent my entire life uh, pushing against the grain (laughs) of the notion of being a journalist, as both of my parents went to journalism school uh, in Chicago, Northwestern, Medill, Mm -hmm. to be specific. And my mom kind of left the business pretty early on before I was born, but not my dad. My dad worked for ABC News for over 40 years. So I grew up seeing the good, the bad, and the ugly. And mm. as a young person, of course, particularly as a teenager, I just seized on the bad and the ugly mm. <laughs> as as a teenage girl is, is want to do. And so I was like, your job stinks. I don't want to be doing what you do and have no real sense of um, stability when it comes to schedule and so forth. So I really never thought I wanted to do it. Mm. Then I went to school at George Washington University here in Washington, where I still am, never left. And I also, even when I went to school, I was like, eh, I don't want to do that. Let's see what else is out there. Maybe I'll go to law school. Maybe I'll do X, Y, Z. About junior year, I would say, I just kind of gave in to to my DNA because (laughs) I, first of all, got the political bug, which I certainly never had growing up. Mm. Um, Being in Washington, I got it. Then I started studying political communication. So I thought, okay, I'll maybe work in politics. And then I realized that I couldn't work in politics because I didn't have a passion for either being a conservative or being a liberal. I didn't have a passion for being a Democrat or Republican. That's just not, maybe it's how I was raised. It's just not who I am. And what I did have a passion for was learning all of it Uh and getting a sense of all of it. And so I ended up doing internships at various news organizations and then ended up at CNN while still in college, my senior Mm. year. And I literally have not had another job since.
4: (laughs) That's so cool. And so rare, right? Only one job. Oh my God. (laughs) One could dream. I can't, I can't imagine what that must be like. I, I mean, and, and to, to look back now, you know, mm-hmm. with 30 years at the network under your belt, what does it feel like, you know, to sit in this position and and to have your first solo show, you know, inside politics is such a big deal and mm-hmm. and a, a mile marker, you know, not only for you as an individual, but I, I, w- I would say, you know, for me personally, and I imagine so many women who watch you, to watch you anchoring this show in this way it it feels like such a moment in our collective history. Is it is it something that felt so monumental to you? Does it feel perhaps just like the next natural step because of where you come from? Is it a little bit of both? I think it's all the above. Mm-hmm. I, I was very,
5: um, I wasn't one of those people who, uh, had a, okay, I want to do X, Y, and Z. I want to do this job and this job and this job. I wanna, I wasn't even, when I started at CNN 30 years ago, I didn't know what flavor of journalist I wanted to be. I didn't know if I wanted to be a show producer or a field mm. producer or, you know, I, I didn't know idea. And so what I ended up doing was a little of everything. I was a show producer. I was a field producer, off-air reporter. And then I became an on-air reporter after breaking several stories. And I knew enough to, knew, to know how hard it was, and mm-hmm. I was like atrocious. <laughs> My first live shot was on the White House lawn, which I don't recommend for anybody. And <laughs> I um but I loved and I still loved reporting, getting the information and and getting the figuring out what it means and talking to sources and getting the full picture. And I was never, and I love running around and particularly on Capitol Hill, but on the campaign trail as well. And so I was never somebody who was like, oh, I really want to be an anchor. I want to have my own show. It was Mm -hmm. just never my thing until I got to the point where I was like, okay, I'm ready for it. And and I do try to approach, whether it's inside politics during the week or State of the Union where I'm doing um, newsmaker interviews on Sundays, Mm -hmm. I approach it as a reporter. Like what's Mm. the, what's the, what's the leading edge of the news? What information can I get from whom I'm talking to? And what can I relate to the audience that I've just heard from people I'm talking to behind the scenes?
4: Mm. That's really, really very cool. You said something about the beginning and I think it might be interesting to, you know, let our friends listening at home in on a little bit of the inside baseball. When you talk about, trying a little bit of everything and and, you know for example field producing or producing story segments what does that mean what are what are the things that young journalists might want to try when they get their first job to see what avenue they're going to want to walk
5: it's a great question well just let's just take the term producer
6: Mm -hmm.
5: it means so many different things i mean Mm -hmm. in hollywood It means something very different in hollywood than it does in in TV news, but even within TV news, it means something very different depending on what you're doing. So uh, you can be a producer on a, like, as you said, a segment producer. So just for example, a segment producer who works with me on Inside Politics. I will do a segment on this. I'm just the speaker's fight. So Mm -hmm. that segment producer will, will help me come up with the sort of elements and here's what happened today. And you've got to make sure to run this sound bite and that sound bite and mm-hmm. um, the information to make sure that we're totally up to speed on it. And maybe even some of the writing coming into it, we work on that. So that's what a segment producer will do. Mm-hmm. Another producer, sort of kind of producer is a booker, somebody who calls and gets guests on.
4: Mm-hmm. And
5: another producer is somebody who sits in the control room and helps to put the what we call the rundown together. So the order of what's gonna happen in the show and makes the technical uh, decisions and edits to what you see on the screen. It's not just me talking, but you see that that banner behind, underneath me that says happening now, speaker election. I'm just you know making things up. So all of those things are various things that a producer j- does just on a show. Mm-hmm. Now separate that out with uh, field producing which is going out to shoot a story, uh, going out to produce live shots. So a producer with a reporter, making sure that the camera is there, making sure that the people can hear it, making sure that you have transmission so that um, whether, I mean, it used to be in the old days, you needed to bring a giant uh, satellite truck. Now you can just bring a backpack with a with what's called a live view, which is basically a cell phone to get people live on on TV, it's it's totally different. So mm-hmm. that's another kind of producer. So there are various ways into it, and then there is the what I call the off-air reporter slash producer, which is my example was on Capitol Hill. You can do this at the Pentagon at the White House, other other beats, which is your information gathering, your working sources, your building. Mm-hmm relationships, you are uh, informing the news organization about what uh, the story is, the storyline should be, what's coming up, mm. and and things like that. So there's so many different aspects to it. And then writing, by the way, I shouldn't have forgotten. I mean, writing is, writing is the core to everything that one does in journalism, whether you are on TV, whether you are in broadcast, whether you're in digital,
4: anything, you got to know mm. how to write. Mm-hmm. And I imagine when you talk about the the sort of size of a team required to produce the news well, you you do really need an all hands on deck crew because there is so much going on. Even in the last week, you know, us getting this ready, I I was so excited to be able to grab some of your time to talk about what's going on with the speaker's drama, to talk about what's happening in the House and, and how insane everything seems to be in Washington right now. And since we booked today's discussion a war has broken out between israel and gaza i mean there there's wild political crises at home there's geopolitical crises around the world and i would imagine that the pressure to get it right and to be able to cover people's stories well is immense and so it requires a lot of eyes a lot of input a lot of intelligence a lot of empathy and I would imagine that you feel like you have an incredible team behind you on your, on your two shows. I do.
5: I'm very lucky. Incredible team. And you're exactly mm-hmm. right. You, you nailed it. Well, look, you got to get it right on every story, but on a story like this, which is so complicated mm-hmm. and so fraught mm-hmm. for so many reasons, um, the language, every word used mm-hmm. is important. every Chiron on the screen is important um every guest
3: uh-huh. book
5: uh is important in framing it the right way and when I say important I mean it is um the balance it is critical uh-huh. look I mean I I have to tell you Sophia I people have said to me in covering politics for years how do you do it with a straight face like how do you handle all of these people who don't like each other and to me it's like whatever it's easy like I I can so easily be dispassionate about politics. Mm-hmm. Not that it doesn't affect all of our lives, but it's just, it's, it's, it's in one bucket. This kind of story, which is not only about, about war, but about terror and mm-hmm. terrorism. Mm-hmm. And um, the, I mean, we're learning more and more about the ISIS style barbaric, Horrific, horrific, cruel, I mean, I'm just, I've run out of words mm-hmm. to say what they did to the oldest, to the youngest. It's beyond imagination. Mm-hmm. And it's on this issue, on this story, it's hard to be dispassionate. I'm not dispassionate. I can't even pretend to be dispassionate, um, mm-hmm. n- nor I don't think should I, because this is about um, humanity, and that's mm-hmm. what it should be.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you use a a word like "dispassionate," is the for for me as the non uh, professional news person, is the idea or or sort of the the onus on having to require that of yourself a lot as a journalist? Does that translate into essentially you saying that you have to? present the news as neutrally or, or as without bias as possible, that you have to, in a way, divest your own feelings, perhaps from a story so that you yeah, can I mean. present yeah. the facts.
5: Yeah. That's what I mean, in this, because that's, and again, that's what I mean about politics. Mm. And, and you and I know so many people who are very passionate about politics and mm-hmm. have a hard time seeing the other side um, and understanding where the other side is coming from. In some ways, like denying an election, mm. that's easy. And again, I don't get like passionate about it, it's just a fact, like that's, that's just wrong. Mm. Um, but I don't have a hard time getting work, not getting worked up about it. And that's what I get a lot of questions about. Mm. And with this kind of war, this kind of terrorism, I do have a harder time, but but I just want to emphasize I'm not trying to not have that emotion yeah. here because I think it's it's important to have I'm not saying like blubbering all over the microphone, but it's but it's important to be a human being when' mm-hmm. reading these kinds of
4: stories. Mm-hmm. yeah, important to be affected. I think if we lose our empathy, we lose yes. our humanity. And now, a word from our sponsors who make this show possible.
0: Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
7: This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in LA. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating
4: Can you, as the resident uh, legendary journalist, on in, in this conversation with me, can you break down for our listeners what happened in Israel over the weekend?
5: Well, uh, the answer to what happened is still being uh, reported and is still mm-hmm. to be told. And when I say what happened, like how did it happen? Mm-hmm. Um, how was it that these over a thousand, maybe even close to 2000 terrorists. And that's, that's what, that's what they were. 1500 of them are are apparently dead inside Israel, um, broke through fences and, and other areas of the border and brutally murdered innocent civilians. They also, attacked the military, but brutally murdered innocent civilians, hundreds of them. Mm -hmm. And it was clearly something that had been planned for a very long time. And that happened in addition to that sort of physical on the ground, in addition to rockets being fired. And in Israel, particularly the border towns, rockets being fired occasionally is nothing new. What is so repugnant and and impossible to sort of wrap your mind around is the way that they got into the country on foot and the way that they made a beeline for civilians, pulling Mm -hmm. people out of their homes, pulling people out of their cars. When you saw and heard what happened at what was a music peace festival, a peace festival Mm -hmm. in the South of Israel where it it appears, according to members of the IDF that we've talked to and and others, and they're still trying to put the pieces together, that the Hamas terrorists knew that that was happening,
6: mm-hmm.
5: and it's it's even unspeakable, Sophia, what they did. To, it's, it's savage mm-hmm. to women and men. I mean, the rapes, the murders, the I mean, it, it's just beyond. And so, again, there are a lot of. A lot of questions that we don't have answers to Uh, but the biggest is how a country which is so known globally as having the best intelligence in the world uh, miss this Mm -hmm. and right now you have the people in israel it's you know like in, in in new york on 9 11 uh oh particularly the people who live like in the feeder areas, the suburbs near uh, Wall Street and so forth,
6: mm-hmm.
5: you, you either knew somebody or knew somebody or knew somebody. Imagine that, but the whole country because Israel's is so, so small. Right. Everybody, everybody there knows either somebody killed, somebody kidnapped, held hostage, which is still very active,
6: mm-hmm. but
5: we hope, and oh, 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 and or somebody called up uh, to, to serve 350,000 people, are men and women, are now called up. I mean, I just know people, frankly, in my own extended family, in mm-hmm. their 40s, close mm-hmm. to 50, who were called up. And so that is what's happening now. And uh, it could go on for a long time.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: And, and the fear is that it, it... So this is Gaza, sort of on the west side of, of Israel. The fear is the north will be another front because that's where um, Lebanon and Hezbollah is, is sort of stationed there. And we've mm-hmm. already seen some some skirmishes and mm-hmm. the fear is that they have well over 100,000.
4: Right. And, of- and for the people listening at home, when you talk about Hezbollah, that's another terrorist group that yes. has a large cell populace in Lebanon to the north yes. of Israel.
5: Yes. And that's so- actually... And I'm using the word terrorist a lot, and it's it, it's intentional. If nothing else, well, first of all, just when you look at the word terrorist, they, these people were terrorized.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: But also, more technically, more legally, the State Department recognizes Hamas as a terrorist organization.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: It's not the same as the Palestinian people
4: <laughs> no. at all,
5: a- at all, and the Palestinian civilians who are. Time and, a time, time and again caught in the crossfire by these terrorists who, um, you know, hide in these densely populated areas of, of Gaza and end up using these innocent civilians as human shields.
4: I think that's one of the things that feels incredibly important to discuss and distinguish the complexity in a region like this. Mm-hmm. You know, when we talk about what just happened in Israel, it's not dissimilar to, as you said, 9-11 in New York. You know, it is in a in in you know many circles being called Israel's 9 right. 11. And what I think is incredibly important to understand, you know, things that I'm I'm still trying to wrap my head around and learn about is, you know, I can't imagine if New York as a state were bordered by exactly. uh, Al Qaeda territory. That's right. You know, no one was sympathizing with Al Qaeda on 9 11. And I I think this conflation that um, Palestinian liberation is somehow tied to Hamas uh, or that, you know, anyone would conflate the citizens of Lebanon with Hezbollah. Like, it's, it's simply an unfair muddying of waters. I see a lot of questions about the blockades in Gaza and what the Palestinian people in Gaza go through prior to, to this happening, do you have any ways to explain to anybody, because I know I certainly don't, why it's been so seemingly impossible to solve that conflict, again, not between a terrorist group and Netanyahu's government, but between Israel and Palestine. Is it is it that it's it goes back so far that it's hard to come up with a modern solution to a historical problem? Is it that, because Netanyahu is very right, he takes a very hardline stance um, against threats, and thus the people of Palestine are punished because of Hamas's presence. They're like, how, how do we make sense of this stuff?
5: So many layers. I mean, it's everything that you just said, plus plus. Um, listen, I mean, Gaza is not, it's its its own place. It's not, mm. Israel does not, the Israeli government does not, um oversee it anymore uh mm. and had for, for many many years and so they can elect who they want and the the problem is that the Palestinian government that that does want to find peace, they're overtaken by mm. the bad actors. And and it's very, very complicated. It's mm. very complicated. And you've all you've also had a lot of internal division Inside Israel, uh, which you referred to when it comes to uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, and not only about Palestinians, but about how they are govern themselves, about how mm-hmm. their own policy is working and how it should work. So you have so many layers of so many complicated factors that don't even relate to the core complicated factor, which is Jerusalem and how there is a claim to parts of it uh, by mm-hmm. three different religions.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been really interesting for me to read. You know, I, I was looking at uh, a lot of information about the recent protests in Israel against some of Netanyahu's policies, knowing that Israeli citizens are saying, we don't want it to be this way here. And then you read about what ha- what's what been happening in Palestine. And to your point, there, if and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I read yesterday said that there had not been a free and fair election in Palestine in 17 years because of the influence of Hamas. Right. And it it's wild to try to hold um, all of this information being so far away, to try to hold space for all of these things to simultaneously be true. and And then you see this horrific terrorist attack, a brutal attack on innocent civilians. And then you see... You know the return fire of a military that is harming more civilians, and you just go, "What's the path forward going to be here for these people?" And 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 will we ever? I wonder sometimes when I try to zoom out, will we ever humanly be able to say people are not their governments?
5: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you can say that uh, go across the globe. Mm. People are not their governments in China. People are not their government. In Russia, people are not mm-hmm. their government. In Iran, to keep it in this region, mm-hmm. Iran maybe is, is one of the one of the best examples in this conversation. I mean, right. I I don't feel like I'm always successful, but I try to say the Iranian regime. Yes, because the Iranian regime is very different from the Iranian people, and we saw that, um, you know, f- a few years ago, even even more recently with the protests with the people there about the way that their government is is uh, is acting. Yeah, so so complicated.
4: Yeah, I mean, what Iran has been doing to women—you know, what we see in the in the women' life freedom Mm -hmm. fight—and then, and I hope it's okay for me to ask, and you can tell me if the reporting isn't um, there yet to give a yes or no answer. But you're even seeing a lot of conversation about how Iran has been funding Hamas, how Iran was behind, Mm -hmm. likely behind this attack, and now you've got a bunch of people. Um, I'm reading articles about how, you know, a lot of the intelligence that they believe Trump was sharing with Iran had to do with Israeli security. It, is that being investigated? Is that a rumor? Is that we, we don't quite know?
5: We don't. Yeah. And I, yeah, I do think we all we all need to be careful about what okay. because it's I think it's there's a lot that's opaque about mm-hmm. Iran. Um, all we know at as of this moment, when you and I are talking, is that the U.S. government says that they do not yet know how mm-hmm. involved Iran was in the actual strategic planning of this. Mm-hmm. What nobody in the U.S. government denies, and what is a very, what is the is an open secret and, and talked about, is that historically, uh, and up until now, um, Iran, the Iranian regime. Mm-hmm. fund Hamas and Hezbollah, mm-hmm. uh, so two mm-hmm. terrorist organizations to keep churning, because because what are we talking about, to use your term, zoom out, what are we talking about? We're talking about an Iranian regime that wants nothing short of the annihilation of the Jewish state of Israel.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: That's it. That's what they want. Mm-hmm. So That is why they have their tentacles in the neighborhood, and they right. have their tentacles and, and their money pushing uh-huh. this kind of thing uh, in and around Israel. Uh-huh. And um, And I think that it, it is it is noteworthy that this is happening as um, well, several years after the Abraham Accords, where Israel entered into what appeared to be a pretty successful a one successful peace treaty, Sort of the <laughs> idea was everything is stymied with the Palestinian-Israel question, so let's let's go beyond. Let's let's talk about other Arab countries. Um, the Trump administration did that, uh, which Democrats and Republicans alike give give them credit for.
6: Mm-hmm. And
5: now we are on the cusp. We're on the cusp of a an Israel-Saudi deal, which nobody in a million years would have thought of. Thought of. Right. So the question is whether or not it probably goes without saying that part of the um, the reason for this terror attack, just part of, is to to stymie that.
4: Right. Um, because and- if you're a terrorist organization whose sole goal is, and to be clear, this is rooted in thousands of years of oppression and anti-Semitism, if, if a terror group's sole goal is to eradicate a Jewish state and the Jewish people, which is in the Hamas charter, this isn't up for debate, if that's the plan and you begin to truly see, however imperfectly, the beginnings of peace being agreed upon region by region in the Middle East, peace would negate your terror goal. So if you can right. blow up a peace treaty or a country or a people, you you can use civilians as a way to create more conflict and more death and to... Stop the peace yep. process. Yep.
5: exactly right. Now, I mean, I just, uh, before coming on with you, spoke to a Congresswoman, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. She was on my show. Mm. She actually was in Israel um, and then left and talked to us from Jordan. She was wow. also in Saudi Arabia. And her report is that in talking to the Saudi government, talking to average Saudis, that they do not feel deterred, that they feel like they're still going to be on track. We'll see. Mm. Um, other officials I've I've talked to, both on camera and off, are like, let's let's be realistic. This this makes it more complicated.
4: Mm. So we'll, we'll see we'll see how it goes. And now a word from our sponsors:
0: Bean Dad, the dress, thirty to fifty feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online.
4: Folks like the congresswoman and even one of your on-the-ground journalists, Clarissa Ward. I, I imagine most of us have seen that video. You know, she was in the middle of a report um, when a missile attack happened. How, having been in the field so much and and having the sorts of connections and coworkers and and sources that you do, how are people managing to keep their composure when they're caught in the middle of an active war zone? How how, how do organizations like CNN try to create, you know, safety for their employees. There's, there's the logistical stuff um, like that, that sometimes when I watch these reports, I just go, how are these people doing this? And where are they going? And who's watching out for them? It's such a good question. I mean, look, they,
5: they, they have security. But uh, if you talk to any person who is an executive, not just at CNN, but any news organization, they will tell you that The number two thing that they are worried about is getting the story. The number one thing they're worried about is the safety of their employees.
6: Mm.
5: And it is such a challenge. It's that balance of getting in there, getting the story, but also uh, not putting yourself in an unnecessary, well, how do you define unnecessary? In danger that uh, that can be avoided. And it's honestly, Sophia, it's a minute by minute assessment. I am not a war correspondent, so um but I just know from talking to my to my friends and colleagues who are there and just mm-hmm. being on the on the show end of it, it is a minute by minute assessment, and when they say it's not safe, we gotta go down, we can't come up live for you. it's no problem that's it got it right got it right take take their word for it and follow their lead
4: right well, and that's what's so interesting to me is there's there's such a need for coverage and journalism, especially in situations as complex as this so that we can understand what's happening. And there's the real human element of, you know, who's going to risk their lives to do this. And it's not lost on me that, as you said, you know, citizens are are being called into the military. People are trying to figure out how to respond to humanitarian crises. And by the way, get aid, to people in Israel, get aid to civilians in Gaza. It's it's trauma everywhere, and the zoom out for me when I think about what do we do, how do we get involved, how do we how do we support people. Um, interestingly, also brings me a little more locally for us, particularly for you in Washington, because when you talk about how our government is trying to analyze intelligence and figure out how this happened, I can't help but think about the fact that. Tommy Tuberville has been blocking confirmations to our military. So, so many of our senior positions are unstaffed, which everyone in our government says damages our own national security. And our national security is also part of global nation building and national security around the world. How do we show up, you know, as humanitarian allies? How, how do we get involved um, as a government when we have a, a pending shutdown no speaker of the house and and you know a member of the gop who's never served in the military is blocking military confirmations like i i feel like we are less capable um of being our best selves as a nation because we're falling apart back yeah. home right now
5: and the question is how vulnerable does it make america i mean you hear Uh, people who are very concerned, particularly members of Congress, say Putin is watching, she is watching. Mm. Uh, And when there are, uh, when there's chaos, or even things are are fragmented, and, and, and pieces are not in place, all of them that you just so eloquently described, it's does it leave an opening for people who want to do us harm? Maybe. Uh-huh. And it doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a robust debate about various things, but it used to be, particularly for Republicans, just talking about Tommy Teverville it was like the reddest of red lines. Like you did not mess with military readiness. Uh-huh. You, would like, you would have been just marched out of the party or even out of Washington <laughs> Yeah. Like, yes. Not that long ago, and for very—I mean, I don't know how you—you know—you can talk about populism and how how the Republican Party has changed, but it is as somebody who has seen the uh, the evolution of the GOP. Mm-hmm. I covered John McCain, his entire president. Well, covered him in the Senate and his entire presidential campaign from when he was one of many Republican candidates for president. In two thousand seven and eight, and then when he was the Republican nominee, and then again, you know, when he was back in the Senate, and he was frankly a a, a typical Republican, and he was the mm. the epitome of a of a Republican who was pro military and and pro strength, and and then not long after, um, I don't know, the Iraq War probably had something to do with it, but uh, not long after the tide started to turn and churn with trump and trumpism who is america first and why are we fighting these these wars abroad and and uh which is something that you sort of heard from the left it's like the left and the right have met in the middle Hmm. on this question of national security
4: but i mean listen everyone that i've ever listened to who is an expert on national security also, can prove whether it's um, historically, fiscally, you know, what the global data says that m- creating a more secure planet, supporting democracy around the world, also makes our country more secure and our own democracy stronger. It, it's not an either or. It's about global safety. And so, I guess I wonder how how we've been we, perhaps not you and I, but so many folks have been sold this idea that you have to choose um, rather than create a diversification of work to keep other people safe and, and us safe at the same time.
5: I think part of the issue that is a relatively new phenomenon is sort of ginning people up and appealing mm-hmm. to, I mean, this is, we're, we're going down a, deep rabbit hole here, but just for a second. Um, And this is something that I really want to do more things on. I was talking to Jonah Goldberg, um, who's one of the smartest people I know, and I just adore him. He's a a true conservative. Um, And he actually ended up writing a column about it, which I encourage people to go read. Hmm. And this I've heard this from from people who've run major campaigns, which is the search for and the desire and the need for small dollar donations has contributed to the um, the demise of the body politic almost. But it has certainly contributed to the extremes and the extremism mm. and, the, and the difficulty getting together in the middle. And the reason is because how do you get uh, somebody who has you know, limited funds, but, but has a lot of passion and is and is maybe only consuming information in your ecosystem, let's just say if you're a, a conservative,
6: mm-hmm.
5: how do you get them to donate? You put the most outrageous right. uh, bit of mail in their inbox about first mm-hmm. thing that's going to happen. You use language that is so over the top so that you get that $5, $10. And by the way, getting that 5 $10 right. also means that because of the caps on donations you can go back to them so to go back to them have an even more outrageous email
6: Uh
5: and we we see it um on the left as well on the extremes Uh on the left and the right that doesn't happen in a vacuum i mean that helps contribute helps contribute to the the polarization
8: Uh that
5: is really seeping in right politics but in in america
4: Yeah, and you see the polarization affecting not just the ways people believe we should spend our tax dollars, but ideology in a way that, I mean, God, I I opened my Twitter account the other day to someone telling me, I mean, the wildest things about just how I am such an evil person motivated by the wrong things because I'm a Democrat. And I'm like, listen, one party wants health care, one doesn't. I'm a health care person. That's kind of how I identify and you just realize it's it's gone, like it's gone so crazy. And I, much like you, I, I do believe in sitting down with people that don't believe what I believe so we can learn about each other. But somehow we have we seem to have lost the willingness as a collective to do that. And we seem to have lost the ability to see other people as more than what we've decided they are. Yeah. And I, I wonder, would you say that that's part of what's going on on the Hill right now. It, it feels like it, at least as, as a spectator watching, you know, the ousting of, of McCarthy as speaker. Can can you kind of explain to folks at home what happened this week?
5: Yes, I will. I will. And as I describe that, I just want to, I mean, because I feel like maybe somebody listening to this is going to go need to take like a Xanax or something. <laughs> <sighs> So I want to actually inject some positivity here. I love it. I
4: want some positivity. It's been a heavy
5: week. Please give it to me. Okay, because let's just talk about about Washington. Okay, you look at the numbers on the speaker's vote. It was overwhelming. I I, I don't do math, which is why I'm in TV news, but like an overwhelming percentage of House Republicans did not want to push out their speaker. It was eight. Eight people, but right. because the majority is only four, like that was that was the math. That's that's even math that I can do. So, <laughs> um, so they so that is um, the, the the reality. Now, here's the positive positive um, thing that I'll talk about, which is mm-hmm. there is there are friendships across the aisle in Washington. Mm-hmm. There are discussions across the aisle. There are uh, there is legislation that is worked on quietly across the aisle, quietly so they don't get kicked out of them by people in their own parties and maybe get primaried. But it, it, it does happen every single day right. in various corners of Washington that people talk and, and deal across the aisle. It's just that the loudest voices and in the case of the speaker's vote, people with enough of a Twitter following or an Instagram following or uh, or an email list mm. have the ability to, to disrupt. And when you have a very small majority, you don't need a lot to, to right. disrupt. And, and I'm not saying that people within the Republican Party didn't have, from their perspective, legitimate rights about Kevin McCarthy. But it's the notion of just being able to kick him out of his job without having a plan B is what is disruptive to the way that the process works and the way that the government Mm. works right now as we speak is not working.
4: And now a word from our wonderful sponsors. Bean Dad,
0: The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral hogs.
3: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels.
4: So can you explain a little bit for the rest of us what the real ramifications of this are? I mean, voting McCarthy out while we're approaching the the government shutdown that the GOP has been threatening. What what does it mean? What does it mean to not have a speaker for the first time? And and what does it mean for how the government is or is not going to continue to function?
5: Uh, Well, in the short term, it means that whatever discussions that... The Republican majority in the House was having, or or more importantly, the work that many in the Republican conference demanded to be done on the individual spending bills. On the surface, this is about spending, and I say on mm-hmm. the surface because there are lots of different factors, but on the surface, mm-hmm. kicking McCarthy out was about spending and the fact that he made a deal with uh, with Joe Biden about spending levels that uh, the fiscal conservatives claimed, felt, some of them I don't want to suggest that they're not genuine because some of them truly are fiscal conservatives and um, they didn't like that there, were, there wasn't more of a cut in spending. Uh, but if that is their goal, then what do they want to do? They they want to or should want to work on legislation for each their 12, 13 spending bills for each part of the government. They should want to work on those. Like right now to figure out how to cut spending in the way that mm. uh is is legitimate and and is more um uh that they're cutting fat not bone let's just say that um mm. on, on a lot of these agencies they can't do that right now sophia because they're not functioning because uh-huh. they don't have a speaker so the heat the committees i mean maybe they're quietly talking they're quietly uh you know trying to figure it out they're pretending like What's going on at the top of the uh, of the food chain there is not happening, but there's really not a whole lot they can do, uh, and so it's delaying the very goal and making it harder to achieve the very goal that a lot of these conservatives say is the reason why they mm. kicked yeah, the out in the first place.
4: And how do the conservatives explain? Why they're willing to shut the government down over their desired cuts to spending programs like, you know, chips and other things that literally support children, the the child tax credit, funding for education. But they were okay giving a trillion dollar tax cut to the wealthiest in America. How how does a party explain that um, when most of their voters are living paycheck to paycheck?
5: It's a very different governing philosophy and fiscal philosophy. Um, look, not every conservative wants to cut chips, um, mm. but the the governing and and um, the approach to how involved government should be is quite different. Mm. Their idea, and th- you can debate this for two days straight, <laughs> is. If you cut taxes and you put more money in the hands of the businesses and of, and of people who have money, then it will trickle down. The argument the Democrats make is that's not a thing. Mm-hmm. That's not a thing that actually happens in in real life. Right. And therein lies one of the many debates that the parties have. Mm-hmm. You know what, Sophia? I have to tell you that I would much rather see a debate about these policies than um listen to people tell lies about election interference
4: <laughs> i agree it, my god
5: i mean at least they're debating
4: ideas it, it's
5: ugly and messy and it's mm-hmm. it's bumpy and it's it's all of those things but it's about like policy they're they're right. it, they're talking about policy it, look some of it is personal some of the republicans who got rid of kevin mccarthy did it because they were just mad at him so it wasn't right. about see it was it was revenge for whatever reason.
4: Hmm. But this this is what at least for me as a you know a voter really stresses me out is that we seem to have lost the plot on how to make the country better for everyone and now everyone just wants to win. And and even the fact that you know look I don't like the guy to be clear my personal opinion doesn't matter who agrees with me or not. I'm not a fan of Kevin McCarthy. I don't like the way Um, He has supported a lot of what feels deeply anti-democratic and anti-American to me personally as a voter. And, you know, I live in California, so here we are. But what's wild to me is to see his ousting and then people in the party talking about how they want to elect Donald Trump Speaker of the House, even though the Republicans have a rule that you can't be Speaker of the House if you've been indicted. So but we know that they love to go around their own rules like, you know, for example, with the Supreme Court. So it feels like we are descending into really personal chaos, Mm
2: -hmm.
4: which is stressful for our government. Do do you think that the chaos around this speaker issue will make it more likely that we do have a shutdown after the next deadline? I mean,
5: maybe because one of the issues, maybe that's the honest answer. Maybe Mm. even into possibly, maybe even I'll dip my toe into probably because- Mm. It it just depends on who the speaker is.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: One of the the the, the last draw for Kevin McCarthy with many of those eight was agreeing to keep the government open and do it with democratic votes. Mm. Because of the narrow Republican majority, you're talking four or five votes. It is not it's almost impossible to believe that a government um that the government can stay open without democratic votes so then that 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 poses the question is that is this whole thing going to happen to the next speaker if they allow that and are we going to be in the same cycle or is it mm. just because people were just like done with kevin mccarthy and that it was so personal that maybe the answer is no we don't these are all Unanswerable questions right now. And mm. you know, it's mid-October. We're talking about
4: a month from now. Mm-hmm. hmm Interesting. Do you do you have thoughts on who might be the next speaker of the house, or do you not want to speculate? I <laughs> have no idea. <laughs> I mean,
5: look, we know who's running, Jordan and Steve Scalise. Mm-hmm. And as of this moment, when we're talking, neither of them has the two seventeen, I guess it's two seventeen right now. Mm. To become speaker because our speaker of the house is a constitutional position. It is not the leader of a party. In which case, you only need the majority of your own party. You need the majority of the sitting House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. And right now, they don't have it. Right. Is it possible that somebody drops out and that changes? Sure. Um, you still have the moderates or the the people who were were okay with Kevin McCarthy saying we're not voting for anybody because we want mccarthy back in there i interviewed mike lawler a republican from new york over the weekend and he's Mm -hmm. on mccarthy and he that's what he wants so when you can only afford to lose because they can't rely on democrats um Mm -hmm. which i I don't want to begrudge democrats i mean it's understandable democrats when they were in the majority they couldn't rely on republicans to vote for nancy pelosi either Mm-hmm. So it's just not the way it works. So because they can't rely on Democrats, they have to have a true consensus person who can get 217, which means they can only whomever this Republican is can only lose less than a handful right. of fellow
4: Republicans. Right. And to your point, you know, some of the things that we used to think were the rules have gone out the window. You know, the the fact that the leading likely leading nominee for the Republican Party has been indicted more times than any of us can count on, you know, high financial crimes and fraud and, you know, defrauding the government. I mean, it's like, it is wild to me to read up on what's going on with with these, you know, trials with Trump. And then you've, you've got someone as qualified as Secretary Clinton saying, yeah, he's probably going to get the nomination. You know, she said she thinks Biden can beat him. Do you think that's going to be our 2024 showdown? Do you, do you think... That's what we're in for.
5: <laughs> I just want to say that um that I'm out of the prediction business. <laughs> mm. So I'll uh, we'll see. We'll see. I will just tell you my reporting based on what everybody else thinks in the mm. in Republicans I'm talking to, which is mm-hmm. it's hard to see anybody winning other than Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. Mm. Could it change? Could something happen? I mean,
4: mm-hmm. maybe. Mm-hmm. But
5: it's hard to see
4: right now. And what do you think happens if, as these trials unfold, I mean, if he's found guilty, it'll be unprecedented, obviously. What do we do? That's going to be up to the voters. Yeah,
5: there are these moves in in some states to uh just to ban him from the ballot mm-hmm. in that case, but those are long and drawn out and very tricky uh, cases to win. Even democratic Mm. secretaries of state are saying we can't keep him from the ballot. It's just not legal. So if that is a thing, it's going to have to go through the courts and uh, unprecedented is a word that we keep using and we got to just get used to saying it because it's going to be used in so many different ways.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when we when we think about that you know the the wildness of these times in our own politics the the destabilization we see around the world we talked about this at the beginning but in your job you always have to stay informed and there's so much happening all the time and we are more connected you know thanks to these things our phones our computers we're more connected than we've ever been before and knowing about everything going on is literally your job as a person, when you get to pull back from all of this from the commentary, prediction, coverage, writing, producing, do you ever get to detach from your phone? Like, do you ever, just like for Dana, do you ever get a minute where you can turn it I, off?
5: I, I try, I mean, listen, I try to do it when I'm having dinner with my son, mm. I try to do it when I'm watching One Tree Hill. No. <laughs> <laughs>
4: That was for that was for your producer Ben.
5: <laughs> I try to do it when I am um, you know, at a baseball game or something, but it it mm-hmm. it's hard. Do I ever turn my ringer off or turn my phone off when I go to sleep? Never. Never, ever, wow. ever, 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 ever. Because, you know, it's a Saturday morning like what happened this past week and I wake up and it's can you go in because Hamas just attacked Israel? or God forbid, I've I woken up in the middle of the night and uh, well, God forbid it happened when a former president died or when things along those lines just happened unexpectedly. And it's, mm-hmm. listen, it's what we sign up for, it's what we do. Uh, but there certainly are moments when I tr- I really try to tune in yeah. and I am all in on any form of scripted uh, television documentaries. Yeah. I love that. I feel like streaming television was made for me and me only.
4: (laughs) I love that. Is there something, because so many people ask me this, and I feel like I don't have the answer yet, but I, I so look up to you in the way you move in the world. Is there something that helps you with balance, with calm, with some sort of practice where you find a little bit of peace amidst this wildly sort of stressful and always on life you live? I wish I had a good
5: answer. I'm not, I'm, I don't meditate because it stresses me out. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> I've tried. And I, and I need to try again because you hmm. know people who meditate and once you get it, it's really good for you. But for the most part, when I try to meditate, I'm so stressed about not meditating. Right.
4: Yeah. Um, does it happen to you? Oh my God. I can't. Yeah. I feel, I just feel like I'm doing it wrong and then it makes everything worse
5: serious character flaw that like, I can't even do the <sighs> Right. But, uh, so no, I, I do think that just checking in with, as like, being a mom is a, is a huge thing. And you, you can very, you very quickly, very easily get out of your own self and get out of your own head. When you have a kid who doesn't really care what you're mm-hmm. doing, what you did. And because they want to know where their cleats are. And if they don't have their cleats, they want to know why you don't know where their plates are. Of course. <laughs> and uh and so that that quickly takes you out of yourself.
4: Um Yeah, good way to come back to present, I guess.
5: Yeah, I mean, I do have vices like online shopping, which is so dangerous. What are your the vices? Worst.
4: Yeah, that that's definitely one. I I can really get caught in a scroll hole. Like I I really I'm, I'm a little addicted. i I never heard that term. Oh, that's, a scroll well, hole. It's yeah, because it's like I'm addicted to the news. I need to know what's happening. And then it stresses me out. And then I can't look away. Yeah. Or, yeah, like I'll, you know, I'll like the doorbell rings and UPS shows up. And I'm like, what? What did I do? Why did <laughs> I order? All- I'm <laughs> not even going anywhere. It's terrible, but it's like it's not a real thing. If I don't go into a store, I didn't really do it. So that's exactly. the that's thing. I'm, oh my gosh, that's so true. That it's terrible. True. I'm working on quitting it for sure. <laughs> I wish I had quiet quit online shopping during the pandemic. Let me tell you what.
5: That's so funny. Yeah, I know.
4: Maybe we'll get there. We'll Maybe get we'll this. learn to meditate and stop ordering things off of the internet.
5: I think that's a good idea. All
4: uh-huh. right. Goals for you and I for this election Go. season. Dana, thank you so much. I'm watching the clock. I know, I know we've gone a little over. I just, I adore you. I thank really you. appreciate your Whoa, perspective. What a
5: great conversation. You are so freaking smart.
4: Oh my you're God, you're so smart. kind.
5: No, it's true. You're so smart. Thank, thank you for you. such a great conversation. You made my... You made my brain work and you actually made me think of things that I probably should be doing more of on my show. So
4: thank you. Oh my gosh. That's like, that like makes me a little emotional. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, next time I'm in DC, I hope I get to see you. And if yes. there's ever anything I can do, I, I can't imagine there's much like space for civilians on your show. But if you ever need anything, I'm always, I'm always here. Thank you. Thank you.
5: <laughs> I, w- I would be remiss if I didn't say get excited.
4: Yeah, you know, we got to get excited.
5: That's a nod to our friend, Mark.
4: (laughs) Dearest Mark, who gave us the greatest rallying cry of all time. I love nothing more than when I get a video of the two of you driving around D.C. shouting, (laughs) get excited. I'm like, God, it's just made my day.
5: (laughs) Thank you, Sophia.
4: Thank you, honey. I'll talk to you soon. You know, so many people have been asking for trusted resources where we can support citizens on the ground in Israel, citizens on the ground in Gaza. There are so many civilians who have been put in harm's way by this conflict, and it is absolutely devastating. So I really just want to thank Dana for giving us a great hub to go to. If you visit cnn.com slash impact your world, you can find vetted and trusted solutions and organizations that are doing the work to support the people who do not deserve to be caught in the crosshairs of this conflict, but sadly are. So please visit the website for more.
0: Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too.